Welcome back to Radicalize Me, the show where we learn how to take action and try our best to resist the temptation of online bickering, sometimes successfully. I confess I've been fighting with idiots on social media. Bad idea, mostly not productive. Uh, Sometimes you have to do as I say, not as I do. Uh, There's no reason to pick fights with randos who make dumb comments on a meme post. Uh, Sorry the episode is late again, by the way. Um, I release these. The plan was to release these every two weeks on Monday. That was a bad decision because uh, I have a... I'm doing an online uh, songwriting class and my assignments are due Sundays by midnight. Uh, And of course I don't start until Sunday. And then, in my mind, I am going to also get the podcast up <laughs> and scheduled to come out Monday at 9 a.m. Uh, just doesn't just doesn't always work that way. So, you know, it might it might uh, might start coming out on Tuesdays a little more often. Anyway, fighting online, uh, you know, what I've been trying to do instead is take the energy of the podcast to my outside life, which is also mostly confined to social media right now. But first off, I started this show so that you, listener, and I could learn more about activism and actually do those activisms actively. A fairly simple premise, but I haven't always been so good about it. All right, when the Floyd protests kicked off, I went to one near me and I was amped up. Right, I was ready to become a regular. I was gonna buy a gas mask and go to war with the fucking cops, but uh, then we we ended up we didn't go out to a lot of other big events, and uh, I felt bad. And I told my wife recently I wanted to get back out there, and uh, she reminded me that I'm at a higher risk for COVID because of asthma. Uh, tear gas is apparently killing people with asthma and she's plugged into a whole other circle of activists um who say don't go out if you're at risk that's not helpful could actually make things worse for the rest of the folks out there you know so i had to really get that in my head and realize that in most cases that just can't be my realm You know, if it's nearby, I can get home easily. I don't have to worry about transportation. I know there's a hospital near our place. That's one thing, but the last thing I'd want to do is burden the the fucking amazing people out there on the front lines. So I have to do what I can from home. And there's plenty other stuff that uh, all of us can do, as you know, if you've been listening to the show. All right, so I'm I'm committed. Uh, The day this podcast comes out, which will be Tuesday, August 18th, I am planning to make some calls for Senator Ed Markey's campaign and uh, send some texts, texts, texts for the ACLU. If you don't know, Markey is the Green New Deal candidate and Joe Kennedy is pretending to be. So fuck that little weasel. The other goal of this podcast, though, is to free you of the chains of election reductionism. Uh, it's taken me long enough to, to learn that political work does not start or end with elections. And I'm working to get my listeners and my friends and family out of that mindset of blue good, red bad, right? Don't get me wrong. Blue better. Blue certainly better. And red very bad. 
But electing someone and then sitting with your hands folded waiting for change to happen has never accomplished jack shit. It's not a fucking vending machine. So get involved. Give money, share posts, do it all. One very urgent matter is the uh, postal service shit. This DeJoy asshole is rapidly dismantling the UP USPS. <laughs> D DeJoy. I just this just I, I I just caught this one. DeJoy. He's trying to DeJoy us, and this is so. I feel like the simulation is coming apart at the seams. You know, like have you have you noticed that. Like, almost everyone on Trump's, in Trump's, like, inner circle has a weirdly, like, ironic name, <laughs> you know? Like, the ones that really smacked me in the face were, like, Hope Hicks, right? They hope that the Hicks are going to keep voting for them. Kellyanne Conway, because she comes up with the ways to con you like it it's fucking insane but anyway DeJoy is uh rapidly dismantling the USPS and uh it looks like Pelosi is going to reconvene the house uh and there are powers they can use whether they will remains to be seen but I'll keep you posted uh there are calls for mass protests and a general strike on September 1st so Maybe I'll do an emergency podcast if there's something to report on that between now and then. Today is August 17th, 2020. I talked to my guest about a week ago, but it's still quite relevant. Um, Alex Katsoulis works with the California Labor Federation. And if you live in California, please remember to vote no on Prop 22 so that gig workers will be rightfully classified as employees whose employers owe them all the same rights as any other workers. We talk about what a labor federation does, sort of a consortium of unions, like a union union, I guess. Uh, racial justice within the modern labor movement and how to vote strategically. All right, here it is. Cool, how's it going? Oh, I'm tired. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think I've been working 14 days in a row. Wow. Um, pretty exhausted. <laughs> Doing what? Well, so I mean, the California labor had their biennial convention. So every two years they have this, this like the biggest convention. We had to learn how to do it all digital in the span of a month and a half. And basically at this convention, um, all the state, all the unions across the state um, basically come together. All the delegates come to, push out resolutions on which are going to be the guiding forces on how labor is going to take positions over the next two years. And then also endorsing ballot measures, um, politicians across the state and whatnot. Yeah. Very cool. So the Federation is what, what the name Federation suggests, I guess it's unions coming together under one umbrella. Is that right? Yes, I, if you're fami familiar with the AFL-CAO, we are an extension of the AFL-CAO okay. on the state level. Cool. So we are the California AFL-CIO, but California Labor Federation is what we're really called. Yeah, nice. Um, okay, and so your name, uh, Alexandra Casulis, is that right? Yes, but you can call me Alex. Alex, all right. Thanks. Very cool. Um, and what's your role there? 
Um, so I had started off as an intern a few years ago when I was in my grad program. I was getting my master's at University of San Francisco and I applied um, to be a communications intern. And uh, lo and behold, two months into it, uh, the communications specialist quit and she went to go work for a teacher's union. Um, so I barely knew anything, but my, um, my manager, the communications director was willing to give me a chance. I'm still in grad school, so it was a lot of work. So oh, wow. I then went into campaign communications, which was like this middle ground of still learning, not the specialist. Um, I did that for a few months and then I got hired as full-time as a communication specialist. So I've been doing that for about two years now. Nice. So, um, when you have kind of this setting of the agenda that you were just talking about, what, uh, what do you do? Like once you have that, once you have that list of like, here's what we want to accomplish, what's, uh, your job? What does it look well, like? <laughs> it's, it's hard because the list of what we wanted to accomplish, I mean, internally as staff differs or can differ from what all the unions across the state want, you right. know, I mean, which is which is very hard to kind of keep my my wants and needs and how I feel labor should act this time um, separate from what actual, you know, rank and file across the state and their representatives want. Yeah. Um, so we so we, we the it's kind of hard to kind of be like oh we know because we don't know until up until that very moment where they vote um so i had uh obviously a, a, a some kind of understanding that we were going to do a lot of racial justice you know in this yeah. moment and um i was in a few meetings not the private private meetings with the real leaders <laughs> but a few meetings understanding that we were going to do something big but people have to vote on it yeah. Um, so I, I was kind of in the dark for a long time up until two days ago. So now I have to set the agenda from all the things we did pass and that's okay. to be determined, um, and how that's going to happen. But I have some ideas, a lot of good stuff actually okay. got passed. So, um, so you're saying did the, uh, did they not meet your expectations on racial justice? No, they, they did. Okay. Oh, they so did. I'll, okay. I'll tell you. So, um, as you and your audience probably know, I mean, there's been some internal uh, conflicts within the House of Labor on, on you know, what to do around Black Lives Matter and, and around the police, um, obviously because of police unions. Police unions, like the, the, the real big ones, are not affiliated with the AFL-CIO. Yeah. And in the state of California, we do not. Um, we're not affiliated with any police unions or the IUPA in California. Mm. But the AFL-CIO nationally has IUPA uh, branches. So there's been a lot of, um, you know, tiptoeing around uh, the issues of defunding the police and um, disaffiliating from police unions, which has been hard on myself and other black and brown union members, you know, yeah. that, that feel like this is the right move. If you want to, you know, say you support black and brown workers, you can't support the very people oppressing them regardless yeah. of collective bargaining rights and whatnot. So that's been a really big issue. And I mean, I, I wanted, I, I definitely pushed internally, like we should be, you know, taking this up, but again, I'm staff. I don't speak for the entire, you know, the unions. That's just what it is. I work for the unions all across yeah. the state. Um, so there was a resolution, the first resolution passed, which was the resolution on racial, social, and economic justice. And this this resolution was uh, put forward by our EC, which is a board of 30 big union uh, labor leaders across the state. 
And in that resolution, which needed to be voted on by a majority of union delegates, um, was an ask to support policies to defund the police and communities and um, invest into black and brown and indigenous communities um, in education and social services, um, and also uh, disaffiliating from police unions and border patrol unions. Mm. And it passed. Wow. Overwhelmingly, it passed. So we are the first state federation, I believe, taking this stance. Um, wow, that's amazing. So it feels great. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah, so th that's something we've touched on on the show is is uh, the, the difference between police unions and other working class unions. Um, but uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just uh, for the audience who might be on the fence or hasn't really heard this articulated, would you mind um, going into why this is important to do? Well, I, so I'm just gonna speak from a California perspective even though I know it's um, nationwide. I mean, black union members are disproportionately represented in, in labor because of the public sector jobs, which we are overly represented in, right? So yeah. you have, I mean, the labor union is small. You have maybe 11% of all people are in unions. And then you have like 13%, black people make up what, not that much of the population, but make up almost 13% of all union members. So I, I think in that, in that very instance, we have to be looking at, black union rank and file and union leaders to be guiding the labor movement, especially when it comes to racial justice. Mm -hmm. And I think that we definitely have the grasp on class, but we don't have the full grasp on race um, yeah. and authority, obviously, because we have do have like a lot of conservative, more conservative uh, unions like the firefighters mm. and um, some of the building trades that you know, could still be a little stuck in their ways as uh, you know, as much as our, other unions like Unite Here and and AFSCME will be, you know, very progressive, but then you kind of have like that very um, more conservative sector. So, so it's just, I mean, I don't know if the conversation of police unions had come up because I know in a few years ago when our brother Philando Castile, who was a teamster, was murdered, yeah. the conversations around policing weren't, weren't there as much as they were now. Yeah. Right. Which is interesting. Like it took you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and right. Maude Arbery to really get to this moment. But um, so I, I wasn't sure because I wasn't there also when, when they happened, but we did, they did have resolutions and they were pretty watered down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the AFL-CEO, I mean, I, I know they're trying. I'm not going to bash them. I know. I mean, they, they're dealing with a nationwide issue. And right. But I mean, there have been, you know, at least I've been reading that there's they've been threatening Trumpko, who's the president of the AFL-CIO, and, you know, police break strikes. Our number one right. tactic <laughs> that we use as labor, there are strike breakers, you yeah. know, they arrest our protesters. So even if we're, you know, distancing for one second around the racial issues, in labor, police unions are not our comrades. They're not our friends. They are working with the state against us. So I, 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 I've never really understood, you know, trying to keep them in this movement. Of course, I believe all workers deserve a union but right i mean if you're murdering black and brown workers yeah then you disconnect right it's and it's weird because it's almost like giving managers a union or something it's 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 like a uh, like i i have over the past several months come to just see the police as like yeah they're like the attack dogs for the ruling class like why <laughs> that's the, it's it's a little wild that people think of them as working class when 
they just, you know, I, I mean, a lot of them probably aren't paid very well, like a lot of people, but it's still just like, uh, they're constantly at odds with the working class. And that's before you consider any of the, the, uh, race issues, uh, you know, associated with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I never liked the police (laughs) before I got into labor. I mean, I just was never a fan. So it's an interesting dynamic to try to figure this out with everyone and and trying to be, you know, in solidarity, Mm. um, knowing that they're still workers, which is, you know, still a hard pill to swallow you know, I mean, it kind of goes against our, our movement because we want all workers to have a union, but then like, there's a clear divide and what, and you know, the, the, the benefits they're adding to society. How about that? You know, (laughs) are they helping us or are they hurting us? Right. And that's, as, as I understand it, a big part of defunding the police is not just like, well, we don't like them, so take their money. It's more just like, well, they're being expected to do too many different, mm-hmm. th- like handle too many different situations. Um, and, you know, what they can offer to society is very much muddled by, like, their mishandling of the you know, long list of things they've been given to deal with. Yeah, they shouldn't be our mental health, mental health providers and, you know, dealing with homelessness. I mean, I live in Oakland. We have a huge homeless crisis yeah. here in California because of, you know, the tech boom and housing costs are ridiculous. I live yeah. in between two and tent encampments and, you know, they don't have the people that need to help them. I mean, we don't have housing, affordable mm-hmm. housing here, and the people that can help them get the services they need are underfunded. So you're sending the cops essentially to deal with people who are unhoused, who might have mental health issues, living in poverty. And, and, you know, what ends up happening is either them getting abused, um, police abusing them or them getting arrested and end up in the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so you mentioned before um, kind of the, the disconnect on race within the labor movement and it's interesting because it more and more uh i've come to see that like that seems to be the ongoing problem with the left is that there's sort of this divide between what i see as like the the liberal like more centrist side that sort of doesn't think economics like plays into it at all and will like uh you know i think they pat themselves on the back because like we elected Obama and we, you know, we like Hillary Clinton was in a high position. And um, then there's like this leftist side that is very class conscious and, and very uh, labor conscious. But I, I've noticed more and more of them acting like the rest isn't an issue or that like, if we fix economic stuff, then everything else will sort itself out. And I, I don't think that's uh, the case. Is that what you're seeing in the labor movement? Oh, yeah. I mean, just, yeah, going off your point, it's like, yeah, you have like one side saying, yeah, more black CEOs that, right. <laughs> you know, might end up exploiting more black and brown people. And then you have, you know, leftists just thinking like, yeah, if we just like, you know, have this, this, this raising wage, this, this prevailing wage or, you know, housing and, and blah, 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 then, then maybe that'll help. But I mean, there, yeah, there is just so, so many racial dynamics. Like, I, I mean, I would, I would hope the left, and just my own my own feeling not with labor 
would end up taking up reparations because yeah. you want to talk about equity. I want to talk about justice. You know, it's not just, you know, giving them housing and, 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 and wait, wages that are livable and, and um, getting them into unions. It's more than that. I mean, we're talking about centuries of, you know, economic inequity and, and it's going to take more than just, you know, giving like these socialist, I mean, it's going to take more than just like regular basic socialism. You need to have right. that race lens, like, yeah, Marx, blah, blah, blah. But come on, let, let's, let's think about race here. He did not think about race and right. we have to, we actually have black and brown and indigenous people in this country that are suffering under racial capitalism Yeah, and, and, and labor. I mean, I, I won't bash, I think some labor, a lot of labor leaders, at least I, I, hang out with and talk to understand race and class mm. but yeah sometimes i i think they forget history right which is an issue like I, I think it's more of a lack of historical analysis like not understanding um labor being complicit in racism and systemic yeah. racism and labor unions um you know starting off as preventing black workers from joining and then hating black workers because they were used as strike breakers because they were paid lower wages. And if you didn't want to work, yeah, we'll bring in black workers to do it for, you know, less than a freaking penny. Yeah. And and I think we don't have that reckoning yet, that understanding. I mean, we don't understand that the AFL strictly barred black workers for a long time. It wasn't until the CIO let black workers in because they weren't you know specially trained and whatnot and it wasn't until they both combined that it was you know more able for black workers to join and even then like in the 60s the afl-cao had invited martin luther king jr to speak at their convention yet refused to endorse the march on washington so i i mean there's just um there's a lot of stuff people don't know that they should know and then try to rectify it right it's just i feel like a bunch of ignorance or or just you know unwilling to reflect on ourselves because you know my well my comrade's black okay <laughs> right. so well that doesn't <laughs> fix everything yeah um yeah it's it's uh such an important thing and i do see more people starting to get it and starting to like take the right steps um do you who is who is in office or running for office who you feel like is starting to get this this balance anyone that you've worked with or here in or California no <laughs> or like in statewide or federal, I guess or... either, either way. Um, I think we have a pretty good, some pretty good legislators here actually are, um, the chair of labor and our assembly Ashkara. Um, he's like one of the first Indian legislators to be elected. He has a really good racial, um an economic analysis class analysis and i i'm very happy that he's our labor chair he get, puts out a lot of good bills that help working people he puts a lot of good racial justice bills mm. you don't really see i mean he connects them as well you don't really see that a lot um you're in boston right yeah um i think i mean i i think elizabeth warren was pretty decent yeah on 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 race and class um I was a Bernie supporter, so I, I mean, I mean, I think he lacked a little bit of race, but I think he he was yeah. he got there more towards the <laughs> end. Um, obviously, I like the squad. So I mean, I I think we have a few people, good good people out there that that really do understand the importance 
of racial justice and labor and, and being intertwined. Yeah. Um, but not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's, it's interesting you bring up Warren and Sanders because I do think that they, you know, whatever their blind spots are, I think the, the sort of political generation they helped create is, you know, um, the squad and the the new members of the squad who were just, you know, won their primaries and, and uh, all of them understand it from a firsthand perspective. So it's it's uh, definitely important work that they've done. I'm disappointed in both of them <laughs> from a lot of yeah. what happened in the primary, but uh, I'm still, you know, it's still better to have the two of them in the Senate than two other people. And uh, I think they have inspired a lot of other people. Yeah, this is definitely not ideal, <laughs> but I'm, it's, it's hard sometimes because I just want to be like, no, whatever, F them or like <laughs> yeah. F that, like full on all the way. And then I have to realize like there's a lot of nuances and I, I can feel two ways, you know, there's always a gray spot. And um, I feel like there's that gray area with them. Like I appreciate some aspects of what they brought. And I mm -hmm. mean, the movement, they're they you know, the, the fire they sparked under a lot of young people that I'm, now I'm seeing, you know, liberals getting more, you know, radicalized, which yeah. is awesome to see. And, and really like even taking what Warren was doing, even though she is a, a capitalist to her bones, but kind of like then understanding like what is capitalism and what does it mean? And, right. and how can I say, you know, Medicare for all, if it's, you know, tied to all these corporate entities and stuff right. like that. So. So I, I mean, I think there's a, a nice kind of awareness going on that I've never felt before among my peers, because I've always felt pretty lonely being a leftist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it doesn't feel so lonely anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is nice. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think FDR was probably a capitalist to his bones, but he still <laughs> still made some good. It's, it's funny because Bernie said uh, that Biden might be the most progressive president since FDR. I believe it when I see it, but I think even Warren would have been like, I think she definitely would have been. Um, so it's a little disappointing. Yeah, we'll, we'll see on Biden. <laughs> I won't hold, hold yeah. my breath on that. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so uh, what goes into the decision when like the Federation or an individual union uh, backs a candidate? Backs a candidate. Yeah. Um, so, it's different. So as much as we're the state federation, we it's like this top down whole lot of democratic processes that happen. <laughs> um, so when it comes to endorsing a candidate, um, we have CLCs, which are central labor councils, especially because California is so damn big. <laughs> um, so let's say like there's a San Francisco labor council, there's a San Diego labor council, there's the Los Angeles uh, Federation of Labor. So you have all these CLCs that are still affiliated with the AFL-CEO. They kind of, they're kind of like smaller versions of us. And they have their own processes where they, you know, put it out. Like if you want to get endorsed, you need to meet these, you know, prerequisites and you have to interview with us. And through okay. that process, they start dwindling down. Sometimes they'll do a dual endorsement. If there's two um, good Dem um, people that are very pro-labor, um, sometimes they'll do no endorsement if they, if they feel like all the candidates are just trash. Mm. Um, and even sometimes they'll endorse a Republican because they know it's a 78% Republican district 
he's at least voted 80% with labor. Wow. What can we do? Like, yeah. I mean, it's very strategic. It's not the best, but it is very strategic for, yeah. you know, trying to push out pro labor bills. Yeah, that's well, it's uh, so nice to hear it put that way, because I think that's uh, really how anyone should vote. Uh, when I, you know, when I hear people like insisting over and over that they're never going to vote for Biden because they hate him and whatever, I'm like, okay, like, I don't, I don't like him either. Probably going to vote for him because, you know, there's like three things on my list of 10 that would be slightly better. Like it, it, it just seems like voting should be a strategic decision like that instead of a sort of. I feel super inspired to do this mm -hmm. because of my rock star candidate. Uh, and, you know, when there's a candidate we all love, that's great. But um, that's that's a that's an interesting way to put it. I'm glad that that's how this decision's being made. Yeah, sadly, we can't live our life being all or nothing anymore. I mean, yeah, it's a disappointing reality, but it, it everything is strategic at this point. So. Yeah, you know, we're not having much luck with this guy that's in office. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so. Oh, so what about like third party candidates and independents? Is that does do those endorsements ever happen or <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll just briefly talk about this this one thing that happened at the at our convention. So we have this uh, state senator um, who we've endorsed in the past, and he's he's good on labor, um, but he kind of messed up. He like was endorsing or you know put out this bill that was harmful to building affordable housing or some something of that mess, and the trades were very upset. And then he did some sneaky thing behind and tried to put two union leaders against each other, like going behind their back while trying to get an endorsement. So we unendorsed him for that reason, but we also unendorsed, um, he was unendorsed by the San Francisco Labor Council because a lot of teacher unions began backing um, this woman, Jackie Fielder, who is a democratic socialist. Um, so it was kind of getting split between the teachers union in San Francisco wanting this candidate versus some people wanted this candidate, but then him kind of being, you know, doing some weird shady stuff. So they didn't ultimately endorse anybody. Now it's just open. You can either endorse either or, but in that we did, she is endorsed and she is DSA. So, yeah. but DSA isn't like a party party here, right. even though like California, I'd say is the most left. We, it's still not an official party. So it's, I think most people, even if they are more, more lefty will, and want to run, they'll still run under them Yeah. While, <laughs> while trying to get DSA endorsements. Right. Um, which happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's a, it's a tough decision if you're uh, going to run for something and and you're like I don't uh, I don't love the Democratic Party, but you know I want to actually have a chance. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're running against an incumbent who's yeah. like not terrible. He's he's not the worst. Um, mm -hmm. He's pretty good. He's pretty good with labor, but I mean he did one bad thing and it kind of gave her an opening. 
Yeah. I think, I think you have to be unapologetic about what, what your stances are and, if, you know, separate yourself. And she's definitely separating herself. She's for Medicare for all. She was formerly unhoused. Um, she's indigenous. She's mm. in her 20s. And I, and I think these are all um, things people are looking at. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I, I blank so quickly on like things I'm about to say. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about how you came to be in your role. Um, but what I always like to cover on the show too, is what people can do short of like, you know, going into a career in this field, like what can they do for the Federation or what, what can they do for labor? Um, and you know, in their own lives, what act, actions can they take? Organize your workplace. Yeah. That's the, that's the most important thing you can do for labor is yeah. if you're not in a union to organize your workplace, to mm. talk to your coworkers, you know, learn what, what you guys are each making. What are your wages? If there's inconsistencies and equities in that, why? Yeah. You know, are you getting treated fairly? You know, or are you getting your health care? Are you getting paid time off? Are you getting sick leave, paid sick leave? You know, are you getting some benefits, yeah. you know, or is your, do you, are your, do you have job protections? Like these are things. And I think that COVID-19 has really exposed is that you need this. Yeah. <laughs> these are things we all should have, you know, so we're not, you know, left on either figuring out how to pay the bills or have to be on unemployment, which is now getting taken away. Yep. I mean, if you have a union though, they will fight for you and the union is you. That's the union. There is no entity. The union is into some weird entity that fights for you. You are the union. You and your coworkers are the union. Right. So if you haven't yet, see, you know, what, what your coworkers are feeling about your job and organize. Yeah. All you need is 50, 51%. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I started talking, started meeting with my coworkers uh, a few months ago because right at the beginning of the, pandemic i had well at the beginning of march i had gotten the flu and uh and pneumonia at the same time and Ooh. uh <laughs> and i missed like two weeks of work but in the middle of that they closed down anyway and we went to working online um so i missed two weeks of work but i uh used up all my sick time after like four days uh, and I had saved it up for over a year. So that was like a huge wake up call to me. Like I, for a long time, I've been thinking like that this is an industry that should be unionized. Um, but that like really woke me up and I started talking to my coworkers and we came, you know, came up with a list of stuff to ask for. Um, our managers got us a meeting with HR and, they heard us out and then said, said no to everything. So then I started um, talking to union uh, organizations around here. And uh, what I've run into is that uh, we don't have enough employees for them to mm -hmm. take it on. Um, so I'd be interested for myself, but also for the listeners, what uh, what's a good direction to go in that case 
Yeah, I, I feel like that's a lot of, that's a big issue here too, is like when I'm like, oh, why aren't they unionized? It's like, well, they don't have enough people. And I mean, I don't think every union has like a certain threshold number, you know? I mean, I think there are some unions that will organize anyone. I mean, and it's like looking outside the box, looking at well, outside AFL-CIO unions, like the IWW, um, here the ILWU, which is the dock workers, which is has been completely decimated um, because of technological advances when it comes to, you know, putting cargo on ships. It's you only need like three operators now. Um, so to, for them to survive, they've just, you know, at least here in the Bay Area, they've unionized everyone. Small shops, I'm talking mm. like craft brewery places with like 20 or less employees, yeah. donut shops, bakeries, <laughs> like, so it, it is possible. Mm. I think it is possible to unionize smaller shops. It's just a lot of people aren't willing because they want more, you know, they, if it's a lot, it's a lot of trouble to organize. It's not easy. It's a lot of failures. Yeah. It takes years of organizing and you will be union busted most likely. Um, so it's just that because of such a risk, a lot of unions want it to be a lot of members. Right. Um, so I, I don't have an answer and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's um but it's possible yeah you just have to find the right union who's willing right okay all right um so is there anything else specifically you wanted to uh share about the federation and what you guys are doing yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, I don't know if you know, but, um, California right now, we are in a really, really big fight with Uber and Lyft. Oh yeah. And the gig companies, <laughs> um, basically how Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and all of them run their business is on exploitation. Yeah. It's on this business model called misclassification. They misclassify their workers as independent contractors and not as employees so they can avoid paying them right. a minimum wage, health care, uh, sick leave, um, PPE. They don't even want to give them PPE at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, unemployment insurance they haven't paid into our UI fund. So last year we passed this bill called AB5, which basically kind of just cleared up uh, a Supreme Court decision that happened here called Dynamex, which was an ABC test. An ABC test, if you pass the ABC test, your employees or workers can either determine if you are an employee or an independent contractor. Independent contractor sets their own hours, um, sets their own pay rates, basically is their own boss. An employee is not. An employee does not set these. Employee has to work a certain amount of hours, um, has to, you know, kind of report to someone, um, has a wage, a set wage, you know. So, so, um, so this AB5 passed, and under this law, it basically said that, hey, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash workers are not their own bosses. They don't set yeah. their own wages. Right. You know, they have to work a certain amount of hours or else they're taken off. They're not their own boss. They have, you know what I mean? They have to, as much as like they have to get, sometimes have to get cars from them and pay them a reimbursement fee and and all these things. So, and then also, also the app takes a, a certain percentage out of their pay and out of their tips. Right. So they're not in the sense an independent contractor. They're not saying, Hey, I'm going to get paid 
$50 an hour. Like a taxi driver is, is more of an independent contractor. They right. have their own medallion and they basically set, set the rates. But this is not the case. Right. Um, so we won AB5 passed. It was a really big victory. And then um, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash hit us with a $110 million ballot measure. Wow. Um, which will now exempt them from the law, um, exempt them from AB5. Um, we don't have $110 million with the freaking labor movement. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so they just been, so it's, Do it's DoorDash, so, Postmates, Uber, and Lyft who are um, funneling all this money. And the ballot measure actually is now a proposition. So all the voters get to vote on it. Oh, wow. In November. And basically, if you vote yes, it's called Prop 22. And there is this yes on Prop 22. If you vote yes on Prop 22, basically, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and all, all these other gig workers will be exempt from ever classifying these gig workers as employees. So they'll never have a minimum wage ever. They'll never get health benefits. They'll never get paid sick time leave. And they'll never have the right to organize into a union. Wow. So this is a really big fight. Yeah, that's that's wild. Is there, is there any indication that it's likely to pass or you're not sure yet? <sighs> You know, it's up in the air. Um, we're really mobilizing as much as we can in, in this pandemic around this. A lot of things had to be turned into digital, digital organizing, which is kind of not my job. Like, how do we turn votes out through yeah. social media? You know, how can we do that? So we launched a website called sickofgigree.com. Um, which gives people background on the bill and, you know, things to share on it. Um, but, you know, who knows? We're up against a lot of money, but we're yeah. going to fight like hell because this is such an anti-union law. If, I mean, yeah. if they become exempt, like all these I, workers who want to organize, who want a better life, who want dignity on the job, who have to work two to three gig jobs just to live here in California because it's so expensive, yeah. will never have the right to unionize and, you know, to have a voice. Yeah. And that's very scary. So the, the stakes are incredibly high. Yeah, that's so crazy. And I'm sure it would kind of open the floodgates to companies working this way, too. Oh, yeah. This is like right to work, but like on steroids. This yeah. is just like, I mean, if they can be, it's basically they can be exempt from the law. Like the law does not apply. Right. Like if you have enough money, the law does not apply to you. And that's, that's, that's like, <laughs> what yeah that's so crazy it's that's a precedent yeah. that's a terrible precedent so we're gonna fight like hell yeah that's our main priority um is there anything specifically people can do to like spread the word about that yeah i would say okay so i mean you talked about like not having a union a lot of these gig workers don't have unions either but they've been able to form these collectives right mm. um of workers who you know, speak out about um, the injustices that Uber and Lyft have done to them. So I would say definitely follow Gig Workers Rising, a Rideshare Drivers United, Gig Workers Collective, We Drive Progress. Um, all of these are driver-led organizations who are fighting against this terrible prop, uh, fighting for it to be under AB5 to actually have the law applied to them so they can be employees and fighting for a union. 
and we've been working really closely with all of them and, and they're very, you know, brave to speak out. I mean, especially if you talk about the intersections, we have this one woman, Sherry Murphy, she's a, a black female Uber driver, you know, and you know, they're the most vulnerable right now. Yeah. And a, a good chunk of gig workers are black and brown people. So if we want to talk about racial justice and economic justice, this is the fight we all need to be in. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I, yeah, I saw that in the uh, Facebook group image, but uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's I will definitely spread the word about that. Um, yeah, I, I started. I worked with um, Instacart, the grocery delivery service. Mm-hmm. Um, back, I think it was like 2014. Um, it was right when they were starting and definitely when, right when they got to Philly, when I was there and, uh, it was like when it first started, it was wild. Cause I was making like four to $600 a week, just like camping out by whole foods, and like <laughs> waiting for orders to come in. Um, so, you know, I'm sure a lot of them start that way. It's like, there's not that many of us, but like people know about it. So they're using it. There's just so much money to go around. And then they just like put more and more restrictions and like different, you know, scammy little rules and stuff in there until you were just down to making nothing. And uh, they were just like such a terrible place to work for. And that, and that it's the same the same model really where they're like you're an independent contractor and (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. we you're at our mercy but you're not our employee and and uh it's just not a not a good place um to be as a worker yeah it always starts off good and fine and dandy and then until it's not yeah I, i was just reading about well yeah reading about and i follow i think her name is vanessa bain and she's really great she's um She's been a, a really big organizer for Instacart workers here in California. And oh. the glitches that happen in these apps um, where you don't get your tips. Yeah. For some yeah. reason, you're not getting your tips. That's wage theft. Yeah. <laughs> like that is straight up wage theft. Like, oh, yeah. It just so happens to glitch when you're supposed to get that money that doesn't go to them. It's wage theft. Yeah. Plain yeah. and simple. <laughs> yeah. Though I remember Instacart starting this like service charge or something where it was like it was intentionally confusing where it, it it's like as a user of the app like you would think that that was just the tip or something mm-hmm. but the service charge none of that went to the driver so it was just a way to like scam people out of tips <laughs> not surprising at yeah. all yeah and especially, I mean, like with the Instacart workers being on the front lines of, you know, getting groceries for people who can go to the supermarket, not getting hazard pay, having to provide for their own PPE. I mean, the yeah. least you can do is give these people some freaking hand sanitizer, some gloves. And, you know, yeah. they, they wouldn't even do that. Not even the bare minimum. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when it comes to, like you mentioned, the history of the labor movement in the U.S. and what? I, I wonder if there's like a a uh, any sort of consensus about why we ended up here. Like, why, why is it that labor like, uh, you know, it's see, in the past 10 years, it seems like there's a resurgence. But like, why is it that labor has like kept a foothold, but not quite had the influence it's had in other Western countries? 
Well, I have my theories yeah. um, from things I've read. Um, so when I was in grad school, I had did my thesis on kind of the history of labor and the black community. And uh, my question was like, is our unions, you know, the uh, necessary to create um, economic equity for black workers? Um, and through that and all my research that I had to do, um, you know, I really delve into uh, the communists and socialists and more radical parts of the labor movement that were, you know, kind of purged out during McCarthyism wow. um, uh, during the Taft-Hartley Act and whatnot in the 40s. And from there, you know, unions kind of losing that, you know, that <laughs> that we need and then really cozying up to politicians, um, hmm. not you know what I mean? to kind of be in the mainstream and to be uh, digestible to the American public. And I think the relying on um, Democrats or Republicans or whoever is in office to kind of help steer the labor movement or, you know, be more policy focused, I think really kind of did us a disservice. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Like when I say like they, the AFL-CIO did not endorse the March on Washington, they were very worried about perception. It's not because the AFL-CIO hates, you know, civil rights or, or black people. It was because they were worried they had just gotten back into America's good grace, you know, and yeah. they wanted to be good in the public eye. And I think that wanting to be this way, to be perceived away from a movement that was born out of radicalism and right. leftism um, hurt us. And then we kind of focused on policy because we were so, you know, beholden to politicians and kind of forgot about organizing in a sense. Um, and I think that's how we got here. Huh. Yeah, it's um, wild too, because well, isn't the full name of the March on Washington like the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom or something? Yeah, that's what, it's like <laughs> that, that was that's actually yeah. what you're about. Um, yeah, that's it's. Uh, I, so, yeah do do you think it's um, uh, partially because there hasn't been like a labor party in the U.S. You know, like and like the Democratic Party became a little friendlier to to unions uh, like I think around FDR but like there was never quite this like labor uh, uh, presence in politics is that anything yeah I think I mean with the politicians I, I don't think it's I mean I, I would love a labor party hell mm -hmm. yeah I'd love like a working people's party um, but also with the cozying up to you know Democrats or, or whatever you know politician were helping us which FDR or whoever um, but then them cozying up to corporations as well, trying to be on both sides, play both sides and us not holding them accountable right. to working people, to poor people. I think that's the issue. We're trying to, we're trying to sit at table, sit at the table with someone who is playing both sides. Right. And of course it's going to be a lot of compromise, but who's going to get the shit ends? We right. are, we don't have money. Yeah. You know, we can't lobby these politicians the way that, Exxon and you know Uber and Lyft and McDonald's and all these people can can lobby politicians. We don't have money. We are working people, right? You know, all we have is don't you want to support working people? And people want people want that label. They want they want to be supported by unions. They want to say, oh yeah, the AFL-CIO endorsed me, but they also want that corporate money. And these two 
forces don't match, you know, unions were made to kind of fight against capitalism. Yeah. That's what we do. (laughs) Right. And corporations are capitalist entities. So when you have a, a politician, you're relying on a politician to, to move these policies and to protect working people, but yet they're also in the hands, you know, in the pockets of all these other corporations, then it's a losing game. Yeah. The slow losing game. It's like a slow burn. It won't be apparent, but, and then you get to here. Right. How did we get here? <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you think that, that there's something, we, so this is kind of counter what we were saying before about strategic voting, but um, I, my understanding is that a lot of the new deal came because the under FDR, a lot of the labor unions started threatening not to support Democrats anymore if they didn't mm-hmm. do more for them. <laughs> and uh, then you get, you know, some of the most progressive legislation in this country's history um, is, uh, you know, is there something to be said for that? Should there be like more of a, a push <laughs> back against the Democrats? Yeah, for sure. I, and I think, again, I think this is very, you know, a gray area talking about like, yeah, if there's a only if it's a Republican, you know, district, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, 78 percent of that district, regardless, are going to go for the Republican. Pick the best Republican. Yeah. The one who's, gonna, you know, support as many labor bills as they will. But then also, I think that labor sometimes is hesitant um, to kind of stray away from people who have good labor records like. Let's say um, AOC, AOC, right? She was she was going against that Crawley, right, guy, yeah, and yeah. all the unions were endorsing him because the unions knew him. He wasn't an outsider, and he was decent on labor. Right. So they so even though AOC came in and you know was you know Better on staunchly <laughs> pro union, pro labor, pro working class, was a bartender, you know, young had all these progressive ideals that we do adhere to, they went with the safe bet. And I think this it is seen as strategic at times. Like, you know, if we feel like they're not going to win, then what's the point of putting all this time and energy? But I also feel like that hurts us is not, you know, putting our time and energy on young progressives who can, you know, be that new face at least on the political side of, of, of labor and pro-labor and help bring that conversation to the forefront. Um, so I think, I think it's a, it's sometimes a strategic, but sometimes we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah. And, and I hope that's a lesson that we learn like over the next few years is that, you know, we don't have to abide by anybody. We don't have, you know, we don't have to attach ourselves to anybody. You know, we have the power. And yeah. it's time we start putting our power behind people we know are going to fight tooth and nail for us right so we'll see you know (laughs) yeah yeah i hope uh i hope we all keep up the momentum of this year (laughs) yeah uh you know hopefully (laughs) hopefully life gets a little easier to live than it is right now but uh that shouldn't make us all complacent yeah or comfortable for sure the fight never stops unfortunately (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so uh, how many years, I'm not sure if you said, how many years have you been with the Federation? Almost three years. Okay. Um, and uh, you, did you, you said you did it out of grad school. Is that right? 
Yeah, I was I was in I was interning in grad school. Right. I had to do an internship and um I had never done anything with labor yeah. prior to this. Um at all. I was really into uh housing, racial justice and housing. I was like my my focus was on housing discrimination, redlining and all that stuff. I was really into that. Hmm. Um but my mom, my mom was a my mom was a labor leader in her own way she was a nurse she was her union's president wow. she you know she would go on strike all the time she's now her union rep she still practices nursing um so i always had that background i just never pursued it and i and i definitely had like this you know very critical analysis of race and class um and i just i never put them two together i don't know mm. why and then i just saw, i saw this opening and i was just like labor yeah yeah <laughs> and then i did it and then i just completely switched my whole mind i was like no more housing labor i'm a labor bitch from now on um don't talk to me anything that's not union because i won't yeah. answer you and i mean it just it was always there in my life it's just so funny that i never pursued it i didn't yeah. think i could in, in this in this way like you know people don't know what the federation is people don't know how to work they know about unions they don't know how to get into unions i think mm. that because it's so small now i mean it's not as prevalent so it's, it's harder to really find your way to get into these movements um but it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me and it's given me such a better framework of being a radical and a leftist and understanding people who you know do have like you know socialist ideologies or you know understand like oh there should be all these you know minimum wage and job protections and whatnot but don't use the word union like at least right. I can be there to tell them, like, hey, have you heard about the labor movement? <laughs> like, cause is, young yeah. people, I think, don't really know about the labor movement because it's mm. kind of just been removed from our, our history. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, uh, is it, for some of us, it's we hesitate to do the thing that will work for us because it's what our parents did too. Uh, like I, I, uh, I teach music and for a long time I resisted that cause that's what my mom and my older sister do. Um, and you know, I was a musician growing up my whole life and, uh, then I got into comedy and stuff and I was like, uh, music's their thing. I'm not going to like, you know, uh, teach or whatever. Um, then I got back into playing music, but still didn't want to teach. And then I finally started teaching. I was like, you know what? This is a regular paycheck and it's, I like doing it. It's like a, a really nice connection. So I, I guess I, I'll just do this thing that was sitting there the whole time. It was just a similar <laughs> thing to what you were saying. You can't run from your destiny. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes right. it's just always in your face and you're just like, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so what, so you were studying what racial justice or I was in a um, an awesome program, and it was a public and urban affairs, so public policy and urban planning. But like our all our professors were like communist, I don't know, and like Marxist. So it yeah. was like it was the best. You know, <laughs> we were reading Bell Hooks and Marx, and you know, David Harvey, and you know, really critical. Um, texts around um anti-capitalism and hmm. and you know neoliberalism and you know how do we make the city work for us you know yeah whether it's through so i mean there was just so many outlets ways you can go a lot of people went into homelessness like uh, homeless advocacy 
Um, some people went into urban planning, architecture that would help poor people, mm. um, uh, just cultural preservation of areas in San Francisco, um, climate justice. And I, and I went into housing because so I knew people that were going into housing. I was like, oh, this is a great area when I want, because I really wanted to do something around racial justice, something for the black community. Um, but no one was doing labor. Mm. And then when I said, oh, no, I want to write and learn only about labor, like this is going to be my thing for a year because you have to, you know, write your whole thesis. Yeah. Everyone's just like, what? <laughs> you don't, no one does labor. And I was yeah, like, well, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, and uh, so you, you're in Oakland. Did you grow up in Oakland? I'm from New York, born oh. and raised. Wow. Okay. But I moved out. I moved out here five years for school, and and I just stayed, stayed here because <laughs> I got a job. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I I was born in um, Queens, or I was born in Brooklyn. Lived in uh, Brooklyn for a few years, and then Queens for a few years. Then moved to Connecticut. But uh, <laughs> my family was in New York for like a hundred years before that. So, how do you like Boston? Um, I I really like it. Uh, you know. For the year or so that I was able to <laughs> go outside in it, um, it was uh, I, I really like it. It's it's definitely um, it reminds me of Connecticut a lot more. Mm -hmm. So like I lived in Philly for six years and um, I did like it, but it was a big city like real like, you know, um, sort of like New York, um, just a, a massive undertaking to be there. And uh, it, it just felt like, even though I overshot home a little bit, I came home a little bit when I came back to New England. So it's been Yeah, been Philly's cool. a new breed. I went there for the first time last year for a conference. And I was like, yeah, this is like New York, but on steroids for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. It's like, it's not bigger, but it's like crazier. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's more intense. It was yeah. more intense. Yeah, it's a it's little smaller, more, but like like New York in a smaller way. And right. Just like, yeah. Not I not as I much. Can't handle this. <laughs> yeah, I always felt like uh, uh, New York had a, a sort of controlled chaos, and Philly was just chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's a little it's a little bigger, so you kind of get pockets. You right. Know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much all I have, unless there's anything else you want to share. No, but yeah, if you're in, if you're listening and you're in California, please vote no on Prop 22 this yes. November. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. It's good to meet you. Thank you, Joe. Thank thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. There you have it. Thanks so much for listening. I will link to all important info in the description as always. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Contrary to what you might believe, a podcast about a socialist telling people what to do is a hard sell. So letting people know in those ratings and comments that it's actually something worth listening to is super helpful. Uh, my new EP, Regionomics, still available on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and iHeartRadio. I'm still working on all other platforms because fucking CD Baby put it under the wrong Joe Messina. Uh, I think it's there but it just counts towards that guy's stats. Uh, my album blows up for some weird reason, and I, I end up de facto splitting the revenue with this motherfucker, I'm going to be pissed. 
But uh, yeah, Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, iHeartRadio, Ragenomics. Find it there. Keep fighting. I love you. You're great. Bye.